0: Alright everybody, welcome back. In this episode, we're going to take Ecclesiastes chapter 4. So when Solomon first examined life under the sun, his viewpoint was detached and philosophical. His conclusion was that life was meaningless and monotonous. But when he examined the question again, he went to where people really lived, and he discovered that life was not that simple, and he had... As he observed real people in real situations, the king had to deal with some painful facts like life and death, time and eternity, and the final judgment. So in this chapter, Solomon recorded his observations from visiting four different places and watching several people go through a variety of experiences. His conclusion was that life is anything but monotonous, for we have no idea what problems may come to us on any given day. So, no wonder he wrote, don't boast about tomorrow if you do not know what a day may bring forth in Proverbs 27. So, we're going to see in the courtroom here in the first three verses, and we'll jump right into verse 1. So, I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. So, the nation of Israel had an Adequate judicial system that was in place in Exodus chapter 18, verses 13 through 27, and Deuteronomy chapters 17 and chapter 19. So, based on divine law, uh, but the system could be corrupted just like anything else. And Moses warned officials to judge honestly and fairly in Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy chapter 1. And both the prophet and the psalmist lashed out against social injustice in Psalm 82, Isaiah 56, and 59, and Amos chapter 1 and 2. So Solomon had been a wise and just king in 1 Kings 3, but it was impossible for him to guarantee the integrity of every single officer in his government. So Solomon went into a courtroom to watch a trial, and there he saw innocent people being oppressed by power-hungry officials. The victims wept, but their tears did no good, and nobody stood with them to comfort or assist them, and the oppressors had all the power, and their victims were helpless to protest or even ask for redress. And so the American orator uh, Daniel Webster once called justice the ligament which holds civilized beings and nations together. And the the body the body politic in Solomon's day as ours has many a torn ligaments. Okay, verse two and three. Wherefore I praise the dead which are already dead more than the living which are yet alive. Yea, better is he than done, than both they which hath not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Okay, so let's look at this. The king witnessed three tragedies. One, oppression and exploitation in the halls of justice. Two, the pain and sorrow in the lives of innocent people. And three, unconcern on the part of those who would have, uh, they could have brought comfort. And so Solomon was devastated by what he saw, that he decided it was better to be dead than to be alive and be oppressed. In fact, one was better off if never having been born at all. Then one would never have to see the evil works of sinful man, so why didn't Solomon do something about this injustice after all, you know, after all, he was the king, and so even the king couldn't do a great deal to solve the problem for once Solomon started to interfere with his government and reorganize things, he could only create new problems and reveal more corruption. And this is not to suggest that we today should despair of cleaning out political corruption. As Christian citizens, we must pray for all in authority in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-6, through 6, and do what we can to see that just laws are passed and fairly enforced. But it's doubtful that a huge administrative body like the one in Israel would ever be free of corruption, or that a crusader could improve the situation. And you could say that political corruption is the most infallible symptom of constitutional liberty. And so, where there is freedom to obey, there's freedom to disobey. And some of Solomon's officials decided that they were above the law, and the innocent suffered because of it. In our system of government, we have an allegiance to the rule of law rather than to any individual. Unless there is a return to accountability, the legacy of the previous administration, arguably... The most criminal in recent history. The seeds of our own destruction have been sown. Okay, so now we're going to step into the marketplace in verses 4 through 8. So, disgusted with what he saw in the halls of justice, the king went down to the marketplace to watch various laborers at work. And surely he wouldn't be disappointed there, for honest work is a gift from God. Even Adam had to work in the garden in Genesis chapter 2 verse 15. Verse 15. And our Lord was a carpenter when he was here on earth in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. So Solomon considered four different kinds of men. Okay, verse 4. And again, I considered all travail and every right work, that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. So now we're going to look at the industrious man. So it was natural for Solomon first to find a laborer who was working hard after all. Had not the king, you know, extolled the virtues of hard work in the book of Proverbs. And the man was not only busy, but he was skillful in his work and competent in everything that he did. He had mastered the techniques of his trade. So. So much for the worker's hands, but what about his heart? And it was here that Solomon had his next disappointment. The only reason these people perfected their skills and worked hard at their jobs was to compete with others and make more money than their neighbors. And the purpose of their work was not to produce beautiful or useful products or to help people, but to stay ahead of the competition and survive in the battle for bread. And God did not put the selfishness factor into human labor. It's the result of sin in the human heart. We want what others have, you know, like covet is want. And we not only want to have those things, but we want to go beyond and have even more. Covetousness and competition and envy often go together. Competition is not sinful of itself, but when, when it's being first is more important than being honest, there's gonna be trouble. And so traditional rivalry between teams or schools can be a helpful thing, but when rivalry turns into riots, sin has entered the scene. Okay, verse 5, the fool folds his hands together and eats his own flesh. So the idle man in verse 5 and 6 is where we come to now. Solomon moved from one extreme to the other, and he began to study a man who had no ambition at all. And perhaps the king could learn about life by examining the antithesis, the way scientists will study cold to better understand heat. And it must have been difficult for him to watch an idle man because Solomon had no sympathy for lazy people who sat all day with folded hands and did nothing. And you can see Proverbs chapter 18, 19, and 24 for that. And so Solomon learned nothing he didn't already know, that laziness is a slow, comfortable path toward self-destruction. And it may be pleasant to sleep late every morning and not have to go to work, but it's unpleasant not to have any money to buy the necessities of life. So Proverbs chapter 6, verse 10 and 11 will say, And as you sleep, poverty creeps upon you like a robber and destroys you, who attacks you in full armor. Okay, and Paul will state it bluntly in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, where he says, If any would not work, neither should he eat. So the industrious man was motivated by competition and caught in the rat race of life. He had no leisure time. The idle man was motivated pleasure and was headed for ruin. He had no productive time. So is there no middle way between these two extremes? Well, of course there is. Let's come to verse 6. Better is a handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. So now we're going to come to the integrated man. And here was a man whose life was balanced. He was productive in his work, but he was also careful to take time for quietness. He did not run the rat race, but neither did he try to run away from the normal responsibilities of life. And so in 1989, Harris' survey revealed that the amount of leisure time enjoyed by the average American had shrunk 37% from 1973. This suggests that fewer people know how to keep life in balance. They are caught in the rat race and don't know how to escape. And why have both hands full of profit if that profit costs you your peace of mind and possibly your health? Better to have gain in one hand and quietness in the other. When a heart is controlled by envy and rivalry, life becomes one battle after another. And that's covered in James chapter 3 and Proverbs chapter 15 verse 16. So Paul's instructions about money in 1 Timothy 6 is applicable here, especially verse 6 where he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. So the industrious man thinks that money is going to bring him peace, but he has no time to enjoy it. The idle man thinks that doing nothing will bring him peace, but his lifestyle only destroys him. The integrated man enjoys both his labor and the fruit of his labor with you know, and balances toil with rest. And you can take what you want from life, but you must pay for it. Okay, verse 7 and 8. Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun, and there is one alone. And there is not a second, yea, he hath neither child nor brother, yet is there no end of all his labor, neither is his eye satisfied with riches. Neither saith he, For whom do I labor and bereave my soul of good? This is also vanity, yea, it is of sore travail. So now we're coming to the independent man. So when Solomon noticed a solitary man very hard at work, he he went in to question him. And the king discovered that the man had no relatives or partners to help him in his business, nor did he desire any help. He just wanted all the profit for himself. But he was so busy, he had no time to enjoy his profits. And if he died, he had no family to inherit his wealth. In other words, all of his labor was in vain and so socrates the greek philosopher once said the unexamined life is not worth living but the independent man never stopped long enough to ask himself for whom am i working so hard why am i robbing myself of the enjoyments of life just to amass more and more money the industrious man was at least providing employment for people, and the idle man was enjoying at least some leisure, but the independent man was helping neither the economy nor himself. So Solomon's conclusion was, this too is meaningless, a miserable business. So God wants us to labor, but to labor in the right spirit and for the right reasons, and so blessed are the balance. All right, so now we're going to go on the highway, verses 9-12. through 12. Solomon's experience with the independent man caused him to consider the importance of friendship and the value of people doing things together. He might have recalled the Jewish proverb that says a friendless man is like a left hand bereft of the right. And so perhaps he watched some pilgrims on the highway and drew the conclusion two are better than one. So we'll come to verse 9. Two are better than one because they have good reward for their labor. So two are certainly better than one when it comes to working because two workers can get more done. Even when they divide the profits, they still get a better return for their efforts if they had worked alone. Also, it's much easier to do difficult jobs together because one can be an encouragement to the other. Okay, Verse 10, For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falls, for he has not another to help him up. So two are better than, you know, when it comes to walking. Roads and paths in Palestine were not paved or even leveled. And there were many hidden rocks in the fields, and it wasn't uncommon to see the most experienced travelers stumble and fall, perhaps even break a bone or fall into a hidden pit, in Exodus 21, verse 30 and, uh, 33 and 34. So how wonderful to have a friend who can help you up or out. And um, But if this applies to our physical falls, then how much more does it apply to those times when we stumble in our spiritual walk and need restoration, you know, perhaps Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And so, how grateful we should be for Christian friends who help us walk straight. All right, come down to verse 11. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? All right, so two are better than one when it comes to warmth. Two travelers camping out or even staying in the courtyard of a public inn would feel the cold of the night and would need one another's warmth for comfort, and the only way to be warm alone is to carry extra blankets and add to your load. So verse 12, and if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and threefold cord is not quickly broken. So finally, two are better than one when it comes to their watch care, especially at night. And so basically it's saying if one is overpowered, two can defend themselves. And it was dangerous for anybody to travel alone, day or night. Most people traveled in groups for fellowship and for safety. Even David was grateful for a friend who stepped in and saved the king's life in 2 Samuel 21, verses 15 through 17. So Solomon started with the number 1 in verse 8, then he moved to number 2 in verse 9, and then he closed with 3 in verse 12. So this is typical of Hebrew literature in Proverbs 6, Amos chapter 1, And uh, one cord could be broken easily, two cords would require more strength, but three cords woven together could not be easily broken. And this is especially true of marriage, the two with God in the middle. Okay, so now we're going to the palace, verses 13 through 16. And this is Solomon's fourth or better statement. Introducing a story that teaches two truths, the instability of political power and the fickleness of popularity. And the king in the story had at one time heeded his counselor's advice and ruled wisely, but when he got old, he refused to listen to them. And the problem was more than pride and, you know, being senile. He was probably surrounded by a collection of parasites who flattered him, isolated him from reality, and took from him all that they could get. And this often happens to weak leaders who are more concerned about themselves than about other people. And this can also happen in churches, which lack an objective function to ensure accountability and correction. Verse 13 and 14. Better is a poor and wise child than of an old and foolish king who will be no more be admonished. For out of prison he comes to reign, whereas also he that is born in his kingdom becomes poor. So there is a hero in the story, a wise youth who is in prison. Perhaps he was there because he tried to help the king and the king resented it. Or maybe someone in the court lied about the youth. That's what happened to Joseph in Genesis 39. At any rate, the youth got out of prison and became king. Everybody cheered the underdog and rejoiced that the nation had at last had wise leadership. So consider now what the story says. The young man who was born poor, but he became rich. The old king was rich, but it didn't make him any wiser. So he might just as well have been poor. So the young man was in prison, but he got out and took the throne. The old king was imprisoned in his stupidity, you know, with this circle of sycophants, and he lost his throne. So far, the moral of the story is wealth and position are no guarantee of success, and poverty and seeming failure are no barriers to achievement. The key here is wisdom. Okay, verse 15. And I considered all the living which walk under the sun with the second child that shall stand up in his stead. So the story goes on. And apparently the young man got out of prison and took the throne because of popular demand. And he says, I have seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him, the old king. And it looked like the new young king had it made, but alas, his popularity didn't last. He can become the leader of millions of people and be very popular, but then the younger generation grows up around him and rejects him. And so the new crowd deposed the king and appointed somebody else. So verse 16, there is no end of all the people even of all that have been before them they also that come after shall not rejoice in him surely this also is vanity and vexation of spirit so once again solomon drew the same conclusion it's all vanity and vexation of spirit and no matter where solomon went no matter what aspect of life he studied he learned an important lesson from the lord when he looked up he saw that god was in control of life and balanced its buried experiences. When he looked within, he saw that man was made for eternity and that God would make all things beautiful in their time. When he looked ahead, he saw the last enemy, which was death. And so then, as he looks around, he understood that life is complex, difficult, not easy to explain, and one thing is sure, no matter where you look, you see trials and problems and people who could use some encouragement. So however, Solomon wasn't cynical about life. Nowhere does he tell us to get out of the race and retreat to some safe and comfortable corner of the world where nobody or nothing can bother us. So life doesn't stand still. Life's going to come at us at full speed, without warning, and we must stand up and take it, and with God's help, make the most out of it. So if this chapter teaches us anything, it's that we need one another because two are better than one. And yes, there are some advantages to an independent life, but there are also disadvantages. And we're going to discover them painfully as we get older. So this chapter also emphasizes balance in life. Better is a handful with quietness than both hands full, together with toil and grasping for the wind. So it's good to have things that money can buy, provided that you don't lose the things that money can't buy. What's really costing you in terms of life to get things that are important to you? How much of the permanent are you sacrificing to get your hands on the temporary? And to quote the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 8, verses 36 and 37, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? All right, that's chapter 4. Next time we'll jump into chapter 5. Thank you for joining me.